0: This is WCPO-FM, 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio.
1: WKRC, Cincinnati. This
0: is the nation station.
1: again, everybody, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 183.
2: Today on our show, we talk about the American Basketball Association with Scott Tarter. You had guys like John Brisker who just disappeared, left to go fight with mercenaries in Africa against Idi Amin and then just disappeared. And it was rumored that he was shot and killed, uh, but nobody ever found him. Uh, he just disappeared. And he, again, he left at the height of his pro basketball playing abilities. This is kind of a different
1: episode for us. It actually is more for our sibling site that you've heard us talk about before, OldSchoolShirts.com. But Cincinnati kind of fits in, and we explain that in the interview. Scott is an attorney by trade. He is also an ABA historian of sorts. And more importantly, he heads up the Dropping Dimes Foundation, which benefits former ABA players and their families who have no pension or retirement benefits to speak of. Scott explains all that, how it got started, and why it's uh, such a necessary organization. We also discuss the history of the ABA, some of its more colorful players, the greatest deal ever in sports, and a whole lot more. It's a really interesting talk with Scott. Plus, there's an exciting announcement at the end of the interview, hmm, or after the interview, when we get to the other side, and do the outro. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to Scott Tarter about the American Basketball Association.
0: Cincinnati. Cincinnati she came down from Cincinnati just maybe think of me once in a while I'm at SinciShirts.com in Cincinnati
1: This is a bit of a strange one for us in that the American Basketball Association never had a team in Cincinnati although as I was talking to you Scott over email uh, there was the threat that the Colonels were going to move here from Louisville, Kentucky in 1973 to take the place of the departed Cincinnati Royals NBA team, but that, that but that never happened. But um, I guess first we should, uh, first of all, start by introducing uh, Scott Tarter. Scott, in addition to being uh, an attorney in Indianapolis, is the head of the Dropping Dimes Foundation, and I guess that'd probably be a good place to start, don't you reckon, with what Dropping Dimes is?
2: Yeah, thank you very much, BF. It's great to join you and Darren. Um, so yeah, D- uh, Dropping Dimes came about back in 2014, formally, but the, in, the, in the years leading up to that, uh, I was, I'm a lawyer in uh, Indianapolis uh, at a law firm called Bose, McKinney & Evans, and I, and I do corporate work, and I was doing some pro bono legal work for a film producer named Ted Green, and he was working on a documentary film called Undefeated, which is uh, the story of Roger Brown, a great Hall of Fame basketball player who played in the ABA. And uh, during the course of of doing that work with Ted, I got to meet a bunch of former ABA players who were my heroes in Indianapolis when I was growing up, like Mel Daniels and Darnell Hillman, George McGinnis, Billy Killer, Bob Natalicki. And uh, Mel in particular and I struck it up uh, and Mel would always talk about two things that pissed him off about the NBA. I mean, one was always the fact that the ABA didn't get the recognition statistically um, because the NBA never took in after the merger of the two leagues, the NBA never accepted the ABA player statistics. Okay. So that really riled him and others. Um, and, And then the second thing was that the NBA never really took care of the ABA players from the standpoint of giving them pensions or healthcare benefits. So long story, as short as I can make it, that was the the driving force behind the Dropping Diamonds Foundation. So we now are working to get a pension for former ABA players. And until that happens, uh, we provide financial assistance to ABA players in need who are all now in their 70s and 80s.
1: And so let's uh, go back for folks who may not be uh, completely aware. Uh, I know we have some NBA fans in town, but the American Basketball Association starts in 1967, uh, it is the brainchild of one Gary Davidson, Don Regan, and I can't remember who the third guy that was mixed up in this.
2: Yeah, gosh darn it. Now all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank on yeah. his name as well. He just, he just passed
1: away. Yeah, he was on our friend uh, uh, Good Seas still Available up on his uh, podcast up there. Tim Hanlon up there in Chicago uh, spoke to him before he passed away. And, well, what happens is these three guys are attorneys, ironically – and they decide to start this basketball league because uh, the Los Angeles can't get a second uh, NBA team and a lot of other cities can't get an NBA team. So they have this notion, well, we'll, we'll start our own basketball <laughs> league. And uh, what happens from there?
2: Well, uh, it was, you know, that's exactly how the setup occurred. And so these guys uh, all for the the amount of $5,000 initially, by the way, was the franchise fee to have a team. And the thinking was, let's get these teams in small market cities like Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and others, and uh, at cities that were not being served by the, the NBA at the time. And let's see if we can create a competing league that will force a merger between the two leagues. So the idea was, you know, let's 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 get some team team owners who are willing to come in and do some creative things to create a more entertaining product than the NBA. And the hope was from these business, the business folks, the organizers of the league and the team owners, we will create such a competitive professional basketball product that the NBA will have no other choice but to merge with us. And uh, kind of like the
0: XFL, huh? Or
2: yeah, they I mean, exactly like the
0: NFL. Trying to make it more hardcore and edgy. I mean, were they looking for any different rule changes or what? Uh, just oh, yeah. just adding a flair, or, or what? What kind of stuff did they uh, think it would was, be more entertaining than just
2: was, basketball? Now you guys know me well enough now to know that I, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, Really objective about this, but they they needed to do something different, and so I, I just think it's so cool they came in and they went okay, what's one thing we have to do? Well, we got to get top talent, right? So they they basically lure over Rick Barry in the very first year of the league, and for for perspective for your listeners, I mean Rick Barry was the reigning rookie NBA rookie of the year and uh, and and scoring champ in the NBA, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden this league starts. And out of the gate, they have George Mikan, one of the top NBA players of all time, as the league commissioner. And they get Rick Barry signed up to play for the Oakland Oaks in the ABA. And then their next step was okay, well, how can we get more of these guys? Well, they started going into non traditional routes like let's pick up Connie Hawkins, you know, future Hall of Famer, and Roger Brown, future Hall of Famer, and guys like Doug Moe, uh, guys who the NBA had banned. Um, unfairly, by the way, at the time, um, but these guys had been banned from NBA play, so the ABA said, "Well, let's open up the doors to them." Um, they moved toward things like the hardship rule, which came from the ABA, and they said, "Why do we have to require four years of education for you know because because a lot of a lot of a lot of folks in inner city areas aren't being in the night in the mid 1960s. First of all, aren't being given the resources to be able to." Uh, understand their options and, and, and get more options in terms of getting this to, to, to uh, take to college. And so they were saying, Hey, why, why do we have to do that? Why don't we just let somebody, anyone who can demonstrate to us financial hardship should be able to come into our league that came directly from the ABA. The three point shot was an invention of the ABA. Um, so yeah, the fast quick up-tempo style of play was an invention of the ABA and all these cool things you see today in the NBA all originated from the ABA and the ABA's attempt to get what was then a very stodgy, you know, slow-moving, slow-paced professional basketball league to see that there's a different way to play in a more entertaining style, and you ought to accept it.
1: Dennis well, Murphy, uh, that's <laughs> that was the third guy. Dennis Murphy, thank you. Yes.
2: And uh, that's uh,
1: it, so, and speaking of the Oakland Oaks, uh, the Oakland Oaks had a very high profile owner uh who was uh <laughs> they sure did. yes uh Yes, one, one pat boone off of singing and yes. uh and now i don't remember he, he originally i think tried to get the los angeles franchise but they said no we're, we've got that sorted you but we need a team in the bay area and he figured well yeah. okay and uh and he took ownership of the uh of the oakland oaks
2: that's right, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe there was there was also one other thing that helped get Rick Barry over to play for him, and that was the fact that Rick was his son-in-law.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. And so, uh, that and of course, yeah, didn't Pat, hurt. Pat Boone ostensibly lost his his shirt, and he said he saw the team play a total of ten times because he didn't live in the Bay Area. He lived in Los Angeles, and saw that. So he said it cost him about I forget what the quote is, but like three hundred thousand dollars a ticket. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All the money he lost.
2: Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. The ABA was with the exception of the team of teams like Indian the Indiana Pacers and the Kentucky Colonels, the first year ABA, you know, the teams were, were pretty unprofitable. Even the Colonels and the Pacers were not very profitable because the ABA did not had had, had not established itself enough to get TV revenue. All right. I mean, back then pre-streaming, pre-internet, there are only three stations, three national stations in the country. And, you know, you were back then, you were turning on your TV set and you were clicking to ABC, NBC or CBS and no other options. And uh, so the NBA had, you know, had had the national television contract and the NBA did not. So they were making all their revenue off of gate receipts and program sales and merchandising.
1: And pro basketball isn't as huge a deal then, of course, it is now. It's the NBA is the youngest of the four leagues at the time. And, uh, and not really ready to handle the competition. So
2: uh, yeah. yeah, and that's why the ABA came out firing with the, all these different rules you know with a the, with the red, white and blue basketball and a, you know and a three- point shot. and guys like Red Arbeck at the time were laughing at the red, white and blue ball and saying it's a joke and calling it a beach ball and you know he was he was calling the three-point shot a circus shot. And so when you think about that in context today, right, I mean, the majority of NBA owners and establishment uh, guys in the mid-60s were calling a three-point shot a joke and a and a circus shot, you know, and, and look where we are today.
1: Yeah. And there certainly are struggles early on. Uh, a lot of teams can't get – some can play in nice facilities. The Pittsburgh franchise, of course, plays in the almost brand-new Civic Arena, uh, while other teams aren't uh, as lucky, I guess Kentucky starts off in Freedom Hall, I believe, uh, which is yeah. a, a World War One era building. And so yeah. h- how to? It, I guess, well, the the thing, and maybe you know more about this than I do, I mean, I know a little bit generally speaking, is that with all these Rebel Leagues that go on to be found, and of course, these, the ABA is related as a cousin league to the World Hockey Association, which will challenge the NHL, and the World Football League, which will challenge the NFL in the mid-'70s. And the thing with these leagues is it's a bunch of guys, and it's always guys at this point in the, through the 70s, and some of them have money, most of them do not.
2: <laughs> That's right.
1: And so I guess with like Indiana and Kentucky, I guess they were had some okay financial backing, but places like Pittsburgh, uh, not so much.
2: That's right. I mean, that was another thing that, that made the ABA so lovable to people like myself, because because, you know, you had teams like the Pacers who are still here today, right? I mean, that really, that really yeah. took. Um, um, but you also had teams constantly changing. I mean, you had teams that were moving from uh, one city to the next city every year or two. You know, I mean, Pittsburgh's a perfect example. I mean, there's a team that came out, won the ABA championship in the first year with Connie Hawkins. And immediately, because they still couldn't get fan support, so they immediately um, went out of business um, and, and moved to Minneapolis and became uh, the Minneapolis, uh, what were they at the time? They were the, the, the Minnesota muskies. The Muskies pipers. first, yeah, then they became well, the Well, they first. were, but then the, the Muskies, muskies moved to Florida. Yeah. <laughs> and right, after the first year, the Minnesota Muskies go to Florida and become the Miami Floridians, and then the the league champions after the first year moved to Minnesota to replace the Muskies and become the Minnesota Pipers. And then after one year in Minnesota, they ran into the same problems as the Muskies did and ended up moving back to Pittsburgh and became the Pittsburgh Condors. So, I mean, that's and you could keep on going. I mean, all the teams in the ABA kept having issues like that, other than a few.
1: Much to the dismay of the league's founders, including Gary Davidson, who was outraged that the championship team moved (laughs) to Minnesota – the, yes. the uh, year after. So, uh, a, a, I guess, a, a foreshadowing of things to come. And, and this is probably a, a good time to, to point out before we get to some of the players that, you know, made the ABA so legendary is that, you know, in a lot of these rebel leagues, especially these three and maybe the USFL a little bit in the 80s are talked about, people always try to make fun. And yes, the ownership is very colorful and there are some colorful players in it. But what people need to remember is that a lot of these guys made these leagues go and unhapp- high because they were, they wanted to play. It wasn't a joke to them. I mean, there were some silly things that happened, yes. But the the players themselves are not to be made fun of people, even though, again, there were some colorful stories in all of these leagues, including the ABA, as, as you can tell us, Scott. But, yeah, these guys wanted to play, and sometimes they played for free.
2: Yeah, that's, that's such a great point, DF, because... Because when you look at the, the the talent level of some of the guys who played in the ABA, starting with that first year, I mean, I mean you had you had incredible Hall of Famers in there like Louis Dampier and Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown and uh, Mel Daniels, um, you know, the Larry Brown, Doug Moe. I mean, you could just keep on going. And that was year one, Rick Berry. Um, then you get into the later years and you got guys like George Gervin and Julius Irving and Artis Gilmore, Spencer Haywood. I mean, there were just you could just keep going and going with the list of future Hall of Famers who played in the ABA. They the, there was such a clamoring among the fans of the ABA and the NBA to pit these teams against each other that starting in the early 70s, they started playing against each other in preseason games and the ABA teams won more games than the NBA teams in those head-to-head clashes that occurred over five years. And they played two what they called super games, where the NBA and uh, All-Stars got together and played against the ABA All-Stars. And, uh, and the NBA won both of those super games, but they were real close. They went right down to the wire in both in both instances. So your point's really well taken. The ABA um, had some really colorful stories, and they had to do some really funny and creative things like have cheerleaders, which the NBA didn't have, halftime shows, which the NBA didn't have, bear wrestling hmm. at halftime was one of the things that occurred at a Pacer game. Uh, you know, cow milking <laughs> contests occurred at a Pacer game halftimes. So wow. that gets that is not to be confused at all. To your point, with the incredible superior talent that the NBA had during those years,
1: uh, the Colonels even had a young lady inbound the ball to become the uh, first woman to play in a men's professional basketball league
2: that's right uh penny early penny ann early was uh the first and only to my knowledge and now they it was a pure stunt right yeah, like yeah. Uh, what was the name was it was eddie uh gobel uh, Goebbels, uh, the baseball player who was uh um who, who was inserted for like one Oh, Comiskey inning. did. Yeah, the,
1: yeah. Comiskey's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So this is similar to that, right? They put her in. They called. Uh, they, they get. They, they hand her the game. The, the game ball. The game comes in. She throws the ball in. And as soon as the colonel player inbounded the ball, he calls time out. And then they pull her out again. So she never actually stepped onto the floor on her little skirt. Huh. But you know, technically, she played. She was in.
1: Was she a yeah. jockey or a swimmer or something like that? She was an athlete.
2: I mean, she wasn't. She just... was a jack. Jo- she was an athlete. She was a jockey okay. and yeah. she, a good one. Down yeah. in Kentucky.
1: So they didn't randomly pull some young lady and say, here, <laughs> throw this no. on and inbound the ball. Yeah, No. Yeah. So, That's hilarious. What were some of the other colorful players that uh, people may or may not remember from the ABA?
2: Well, I mean, there's so many, but uh, Wendell Ladner um, jumps out at me as as one. I mean, here's a guy who looked like for for anybody who's you know uh, an older person listening to your podcast, you know you 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 would always remember the Marlboro Man, and the Marlboro Man was a swarthy, good looking, you know, uh, chiseled guy who always showed up and and uh, wowed all the ladies with his cowboy hat and his stunning good looks and his Marlboro cigarettes, and uh, Wendell looked just like the Marlboro Man, just a you know stunningly good looking. Stud, But he was also an amazing basketball player. He was an all star one year, uh, I believe, but he but he was definitely a starter and a, and, a, and, a, and a very big contributor to the New York Nets and several other teams. But um, but Wendell had a propensity to uh, dive on the ball for loose balls and he didn't care i dive on the floor for loose balls. He didn't care if he ran into guys. He didn't care if he uh, ignited fights. He didn't care if he um, one time he slammed into a glass water cooler, trying to grab a ball and shattered the water cooler. He injured fans, um, got into multiple fights, um, and ultimately died in a plane crash because he missed the team flight uh, to a game in New York, caught a separate flight. And that flight uh, sadly happened to go down in Queens and i think over 200 people on board were killed including him um wow. so that was and, and that occurred at the height of his playing career but he was he was just a bruiser i mean got in fights all the time you know you had guys like um you had guys like uh, warren Jabali. you know who went from being warren armstrong when he played in the earlier years of the league in the league to becoming uh just Jabali. people just knew him as javali and, and he went through a you know, uh, Muslim conversion, and he was a very hardcore militant uh, Black, black uh, Panther um, at the time in the 60s and 70s. And he fought like crazy. He, he had guys like John Brisker, who just disappeared, left to go fight with mercenaries in Africa against Idi Amin, and then just disappeared. And it was rumored that he was shot and killed, um, but nobody ever found him. Uh, he just disappeared. And he, again, he left at the height of his pro-basketball playing abilities um so yeah lots of colorful characters i could keep going
0: yeah what's the story about the guy who had the tiger or the exotic animals
2: he's actually a good friend of mine bob nettle you guys should have him on your podcast your listeners would love him but he he was known as the uh, as the joe namath of the aba because he was a really good looking guy and he was with a different lady you know all the time he had a bar in indianapolis his nickname was netto And he had a bar in Indianapolis called Nettos in the Meadows. And he would invite opposing players in the ABA to come to his bar. And he would have uh, friendly waitresses make sure that they gave him, they gave these players extra drinks to knock them out, you know, for the next day. Um, Sometimes he would set them up with with local ladies um, in the hopes that they would be more tired the next day. Uh, And yeah, he owned an ocelot. He owned a lion. Kept him in his apartment, and uh, had a motorcycle. Um, you know, just a just a just a crazy dude, fun dude, four time all star, average double double <laughs> for his career.
1: And it brings to the point uh, that we had we're talking before in previous meetings we've had business meetings we've had is that these guys were allowed to be themselves. Where in the NBA, you know, you had to wear a suit and tie, keep that haircut short, hippie, and what uh, the ABA was like they wanted that. The personalities to, to shine.
2: Yeah, uh, that's 100% correct, BF, and that's, that's another one of the things that has been lost over time is that that's exactly what the ABA did to attract, one of the things they did to attract this top-level talent was to say, you know, unlike the NBA, it's funny to me today to watch the NBA, you know, when you see a player comes up and they get out of their Bentley and they've got this gorgeous, you know, custom suit and the cameras follow them in, and I'm thinking, well, that's the ABA. I mean, in the in the in back in the day, in the '60s and the '70s, in the NBA, you did have to have your hair cut. You did you could not wear jewelry. You had to wear the team suit, um, and uh, and you had to talk and act the right way. And the ABA ownership just they are the ones who said to the players, "We don't care what you wear, and we don't care what you say. We, we want you to perform on the basketball court and be yourself." And the ABA was really the architect of letting players. Uh, empowering players to be themselves and perform at their highest level. And uh, I'm going to should we get to some of the other,
1: uh, uh, say, so we say colorful players of the of the ABA? Uh, there's the great story of Darnell Hillman, and uh, and this was it the slam dunk contest where he didn't even have a uniform to wear.
2: Yeah, he he um, back you know the ABA invented the All Star game slam dunk competition, and when the year of the merger. I, I think the NBA – I don't know this firsthand, but my assumption is the NBA wasn't real keen on, on adopting all the rules, right? They didn't adopt the three-point shot from the ABA. That took a while, and they didn't want to adopt the slam dunk competition that the ABA held, that Julia Serving won. But they did say, let's go ahead and try it, but we'll do it during the course of the year. We'll have a representative from each team represent the teams, and they'll dunk off against each other. During the course of the year, two guys at this game, two guys at that game, until we have an elimination down to two guys at the NBA Finals. And by the time Darnell Hillman got to the NBA Finals and had eliminated Moses Malone and and uh, David Thompson and, and um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, he got to the Finals, but he had been traded from the Pacers to the Nets. He didn't want to wear the Pacers jersey the pacers uniform at the finals because he wasn't that happy and he didn't have his nets uniform yet so he just put on a warm-up shirt of his softball team in indianapolis from the, the bottle shop liquor store and that is an epic story around indianapolis these days about how you know darnell won that competition on cbs on national tv at the halftime of the 1977 nba finals deciding game and he did it in adidas shorts um and an adidas tank top and a bottle shop warm-up shirt and he just casually with that big old afro of his threw down some of the most wicked dunks for that time period and uh and won his championship and the bottle shop is still there still there
1: yeah Um, still there i was
2: just there talking to tom bobe the owner uh a couple of days ago we were still we were there and uh you know i know you guys are coming out with a with a shirt to commemorate that event, and Tom, I got to tell you, he cannot wait to get his hands on a stack of those shirts because he's got a whole bunch of customers already lining up who want to want to get those. So, I'm glad you guys are are going to memorialize that event. Uh, speaking of
1: Julius Irving,
2: that's the one of the reasons
1: he joined the ABA. I remember watching the documentary
2: where he said, I can't remember
1: who drafted him in the NBA, but he had a choice of going to the NBA or going. What was the were the Squires the first team he played for in the? ABA, yes. Yeah. So he said, I could go to Virginia or I could go to the NBA. I could go to Virginia and be myself and, you know, played like I want to play or I can go to this rigid. And, you, you know, you think the NBA would have learned pretty quickly that, well, maybe we should kind of loosen things up a little bit. But I guess I figured, well, the ABA is going to go away eventually. I mean, they kept hoping yeah. and hoping. And uh, but it did not, at least not soon.
2: <laughs> well, another thing that's sort of lost is that if you think of it, the era... know, that the ABA came into existence. It was the era of the Civil Rights Act. It was was the era of the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Act, the sexual revolution, and the ABA was really ushering in the power of the players in professional basketball to be the young men they were, right, when it came to to all of those things. So if they wanted to speak out um, about civil rights, if they wanted to speak out about, uh, you know, the, the Vietnam War, And certainly if they wanted to be themselves as it relates to, you know, um, sexual matters and women, um, that, you know, then it was all, all bets were off. And, uh, the NBA was not like that at all. I mean, I'm sure that would probably surprise a lot of young people today to think about the NBA being a stodgy league, but that it was.
1: Yeah. It's strange because if you think now the NFL is still kind of stodgy, they'll, they'll crack down occasionally on people. It's kind of weird how that still is happening. And as Darren mentioned with the XFL, you know, sometimes people are able to come up with, you know, uh, an alternative to appeal to people because you know, people forget what the sport is about and, you know, what having personality is about and, you know, are forced to fit in and people don't like to fit in <laughs> and people yeah. identify
2: with, yeah, with that. Well, one of these days, I hope you guys do a t-shirt, uh, um, commemorating, uh, guys like uh, Reggie Harding, okay. As another example of, I mean, Reggie Harding was the first guy to come directly out of high school into the pros um, because he was seven foot one and had incredible talent. He was, he came out of Detroit Pershing high school, which is where Mel Daniels came from also and Spencer Haywood. And, um, but he came out and there were, you know, he had some, he had some rough, very serious roughness around the edges. And uh, he, you know, he came from an inner city area where gang activity was high and, and uh, drug activity was high. And he just was always getting into trouble with the Detroit Pistons of the NBA. And he ended up getting cut and uh, and waived, essentially, um, for all kinds of reasons um, related to his background. And so then he comes to the Pacers, and he's over the course of about a 30-game stint with the Indiana Pacers, he was so dominant. I mean, he was averaging uh, double-doubles. Um, he was He would routinely score 20 and pull down 15 or 20 rebounds. But he just couldn't get over the trou- the street troubles that he had, you know, and ultimately he pulled a gun on one of one of his teammates on the Pacers, uh, threatened the owner, threatened to kill the owner. And he ended up back in Detroit and was and ended up being shot and killed on the streets in Detroit in 1971. But but boy, during those t- that short amount of time he spent in the NBA and in the ABA, uh, you know, he was he was a dominant force.
1: Another guy that had trouble uh, escaping his, I don't know. I guess his background with Marvin Barnes of the Spirits of St. Louis.
2: Yeah, that's right. Bad news. Huh. Bad news, Marvin Barnes. He did. He he even said in a documentary uh, that that I saw um, a few years ago. Um, he even said that that uh, that was his number one goal. Even when he was a player, his number one goal was to be a pimp <laughs> and a drug dealer. A pimp and a drug dealer. <laughs> well,
1: there's probably better money being than being uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: in the ABA. Not that they weren't offering. Uh,
1: good yeah. money in the ABA, but seeing that money was sometimes uh, difficult. Of course, as is the yes. case in these Rebel leagues. So, did he start with the Spirits? How did he even get into the into the league? I'm...
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think he did start with the Spirits of St. Louis, and um, and then ultimately ended up on the Utah Jazz for a little bit, and played a little bit in the NBA after the merger. Um, but uh, but you know you know drugs uh, were an issue with him and his career. But I've had many players in the former ABA players tell me that he was such a force that he would be a top 50 all-time NBA player had he been able to just, you know, focus without distractions and play his game.
1: And another guy associated with the spirits of St. Louis that folks may not realize, a guy that got his broadcasting career uh, started in St. Louis, was one Bob Costas.
2: Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, he kind of... I th- my, the story that I've heard is that he he um, embellished a little bit about his age when he applied yeah. for this position because he was going to school at Syracuse, you know, <laughs> taking broadcasting, and he sent in a little clip on an old cassette and uh, and, and embellished a little bit about his uh, about his age, and that's how he ended up getting that the job with the Spirits. But that is exactly why he loves the ABA to this day and is on the advisory board of the dropping dimes foundation
1: Uh uh-huh yeah he had a buddy of his i believe slow the pitch down slightly in his voice so he didn't sound like a kid because he was he was 22 (laughs) yeah yeah i've heard that yeah yeah i've heard that as well that's that's (laughs) funny um
0: so the other famous announcer from cincinnati marty brenneman right that's
2: right uh, yeah flyers Correct. That's right. He did. He did start with the with the Squires, didn't he? Yeah. Yes.
0: I don't know. I don't know how long his run was with them, or I don't know. Maybe I have to ask Marty about <laughs> about his time with the Squires. But uh, this, this is the one thing I always heard about. I was you, like, yeah, old old Marty.
1: It was a couple of seasons, and I think concurrently, he was I think doing minor league baseball, maybe for the Tidewater Tides, and then. But I think he went directly from the Squires. To uh, the Reds' gig, in what was it seventy two three? See, this we need Josh here for this.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: Josh should get us sorted. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> Josh the big. Those red. stories, those stories though, whether it's owners, the players, you know, sometimes in some cases it was the officials um, or the or the broadcasters. I mean, they're 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 really epic stories um, that 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 come from the ABA and way more interesting. You know, at the time. And now, for that matter, than the stories that were coming out of the NBA. Do you know that the ABA guys actually called the NBA guys? And I got this firsthand from a guy named Larry Jones, who is uh, is just an incredible six time All Star from the ABA. He would be, um, you know, probably in the Hall of Fame had he had he played in the NBA. It got more more uh, uh, airtime, but Larry told me that the the players themselves decided to start calling their buddies. Uh, in the NBA and, and they wanted to do a, an all-star game that the players themselves put on in the summer and they played it in Indianapolis and it was to raise money for, for, for the, uh, um, NAACP or, you know, at at the, at the time it had a different, there was a different, um, might've been the the United Negro college fund, but they, they wanted to raise money for African-American, uh, um, secondary education. So they 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 all on their own decide to do this. The NBA players were threatened with fines by their owners if they did this, and they sort of said "screw you," and they did it anyway. And uh, and so you know, Walt Frazier from the Knicks, um, some, uh, Earl Monroe from the Knicks, guys, you know, real real top name guys from the NBA played against real top name guys from the ABA, and they did it strictly to raise money um, for, uh, for for college scholarships. Um, and uh, you know that's just amazing. Can you imagine that happening today, where, where players risk injury and fines, and you know, and just get together because hell, they can, you know, for a good cause? I'd love to see it.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah,
2: the owners <laughs> would be scared to death of something like that. Well, and the same thing with the Rucker Park. You know, the 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 ABA players, uh, NBA players as well, but ABA players really made Rucker Park um, sort of sort of famous at the time. I mean, when Julius Irving starts showing up at Rucker Park in the summers just to run summer league you know summer 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 games pickup games uh you know they would get thousands of people out there watching these street ball games and a ton of aba players played out there
1: and didn't the, didn't the rucker park concept kind of go nationwide and
2: they're wanting to do that yeah they're, they're, they wanna, wanting have... they, they're wanting to they're wanting to have a you know sort of a rucker park model in in, in cities across the country
1: okay and um what was my next question going to be here? Um, I lost my train of thought. Um, I want to get to Big. the end. Oh, Pinky. Tell us about Pinky. That was the, 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 the ghost. Oh, so. con- Slick Pinkham. Slick Pinkham. There we go. Yeah. You know, when you say Pinky, there's so many
2: amazing stories about the ABA. When you said Pinky, I was thinking, oh, Pinky Gardner, that Lloyd Pinky Gardner, the, the, the <laughs> trainer for the Kentucky Colonels. But no, but Slick Slick Pinkham is uh, is is a um, fictitious character of significant note because in the 1971 ABA draft, the, the ABA used to have secret drafts just to drive the NBA crazy. They would they would literally. Because they, they didn't have to follow NBA rules, right? So they're drafting people under the hardship rule, they're drafting people out of high school, um, you know, they're doing what, what is done today in the NBA for the most part. Um, but they would do it secretly so that the NBA didn't even know who they drafted. And then sometimes the ABA would, would, would draft a guy like you'd see, can't remember who drafted uh, Dan Nessel but someone other than Kentucky drafted Dan Essel. Detroit. In I, just did the NBA. The I just did the show. Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was Detroit in the NBA, but right. then it was another ABA team. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. And Dan has told me himself that he said, the only way I'm going to the ABA oh, that's is right. if I play for Kentucky because he was a UK guy. Right, right, okay. And uh, and so, they, they, so the owners of the Kentucky team and the ABA team that actually drafted him got together and worked out a deal. And the next thing you know, He's, he's at Kentucky, and that's how he ends up with the Colonels. But during that 71 draft, Slick uh, Leonard, the Pacers coach, and Dick Tinkham, the Pacers lawyer, um, were in the draft room, and they they already had a championship-caliber team, and they added future Hall of Famer George McGinnis to Hall of, future Hall of Famer Mel Daniels, future Hall of Famer Roger Brown, and Darnell Hillman. So they were stacked. And, uh, and, and Slick's getting more and more pissed, the further they go, the deeper they go into the draft, right? And by the time they got to the seventeenth round, he's just fit to be tied. He just, he's just, he's just, and he says, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not gonna pick another another no-name guy in the 17th round. And and the GM, a guy named Rob Weissert, starts telling him, You have to. Those are the rules. You've got to do it. And the lawyer is saying, I agree, you gotta do it. And so then Slick Slick came up with the name. Or Rob Weissert or Slick, one of the two came up with the name Slick Pinkham, which was sort of a combination between Slick, Leonard, and Dick Tinkham. And uh, apparently the guys then said, well, we got it. He can't come from a D1 school because I'll be able to figure that out. And so they said they picked a Division three school and said, okay, he played at DePaul University, DEPAUW in Greencastle, Indiana, which is my alma mater.
1: Oh wow! <laughs> and
2: and they said, uh, you know, we'll say he's Slick Pinkham. He's a redshirt from DePaul University. And within that five-minute pre-internet time period that they were on the clock, the NBA couldn't confirm it, so it went down in league history as an official draft choice, even though the guy didn't didn't exist. So, so so yeah. A lot of the players love the reference to Slick Pinkham because because that was another rebellious thing that happened in the ABA that was recorded for history.
0: Yeah, and he's actually on the, so he's the commissioner now or how did he become?
2: No, like, he's, he's been made on a, on, a, on a supporting company called Lana Sports that, that, that creates um, uh, merchandise to support the Dropping Diamonds Foundation. Lana Sports has brought back the original ABA basketball. So the original design, look, feel, synthetic leather, the whole nine yards, you know, composite leather. That ball is back, and the guys at Atlanta Sports wanted to pay homage to Slick Pinkham, so they made him the commissioner of the new ABA ball. But he he was never an actual commit; He was just drafted by the oh, Pacers okay. to play for the Pacers. Aha.
1: Okay. Gotcha. And so merger talks actually start uh, – I didn't know this until um, reading a, a couple of uh, years ago – that the merger talks actually started fairly early on after the ABA started, even though a lot of ABA teams weren't doing very well, it was still doing well enough that the NBA yeah. thought the best way to make this go away would be to do like a to absorb some of the teams. But the ABA wanted to be like an AFL, NFL thing, or all the teams come in. When when do merger talks start really becoming a real thing? I know the exhibition games start in the 70s, early 70s. Yeah
2: they really started becoming a real thing in, uh, in 1970, 71. And the genesis of that was the players and younger people today who like professional basketball and current NBA players should really understand this because, because it's so important to what, you know, to, to how much money the NBA teams are worth today and how much NBA players get paid today. But the problem was with two competing leagues that the players were, were empowered, right? In so many different ways we've already talked about, but they were also empowered to be drafted by the NBA and the ABA. So then they just looked at the two different ownerships and said, okay, who's gonna pay me more? And the ABA was winning a lot of those, those wars. So the owners of both the NBA and the ABA, quite frankly, right? they had kind of an interest in a merger because that was the only way to consolidate the teams and take the leverage away from the players because as this you know these competing leagues were going on from 67 through 70 71 the player salaries were skyrocketing um, because of this competition so that so the owners had a built-in desire to stop that and the players led by oscar robertson you know of uh, hometown boy for me and for you guys in cincy um he is the one who was the president of the players the nba players association in 1971 And the NBA Players Association sues in federal court to prevent the merger between the ABA and the NBA because the players didn't didn't want the merger, right? They liked the high salaries. So it was funny. The team owners and the leagues wanted it. The players didn't because the ABA was so good for the players and so good for player leverage.
1: And did the NBA have a a rule like baseball and and football did where uh – pre-free agency effort what they what what's what what's that rule called um it started in baseball reserve clause reserve clause the reserve. did they did the nba have something like that too and were they exempt because they, the, the the uh wha ended up fighting it in hockey successfully.
2: yeah they, they, i mean they, it was i think in the nba it was more of an unwritten okay sort of one of these unwritten rules gentlemen's agreements gentlemen's agreements so okay. to speak
1: okay okay
2: but yeah, nothing like that existed in the
1: ABA. Yeah, and it's weird too because uh, the the NHL had the forethought to double the size of their league in 1967, thinking they were going to avoid all this mess. And again, yeah. and, but 1972 comes along and nope.
2: <laughs> well, thing. I think that I, I'm fascinated by the whole idea that ABA and the NBA were so different than than the than the than the, than the hockey and the and the and the football situations True. because you had such competing groups at such an odd time and they had such different rules and 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 the cultures of both different leagues were so different and then you even had competing interests you know the question you just asked about when the merger discussion started you know I mean it might you know somebody who's been listening to the whole podcast might say well wait a minute I thought the the league was formed by the ABA owners to force a merger and now this dude is saying that in 1971 it was the players who were trying to stop the merger and the, and the, you know, and, but that's all true. I mean, you've got, you've got, right. You've got the, you've got the ownership. If you really think through the business portions of this, the ownership is when The ABA ownership is succeeding. It's created the different style of play. It's created something that's so entertaining that it's getting a lot of fans and it's created this competition that is driving toward a merger. And, um, and, and they knew that, that the NBA was going to want to stop this, this competition, right? And so these antitrust cases were brought by the players to keep the league separate, and it, and it ultimately killed the ABA because, you know, the players are keeping it separate, the courts are stopping the merger. The merger didn't happen until 1976, and by then the ABA was severely weakened and had gone through an, a whole lot of changes in terms of its teams. But the, I, the basic premise of the ABA was correct. The basic premise worked changed the way basketball was played the business guys who started the aba were right that they they created a product that forced a merger but it, it just took too damn long and the players you know were, were trying to stop it from happening for a while and i get why they were doing it you know because they were enjoying the fruits but those fruits continued yeah right because the players the players once they got that kind of empowerment that the aba brought it just it just went up from there
1: yeah, and weirdly, they could have had more jobs because probably more teams would have been included early on uh, in a merger. Yes. But um, And that's a great point you bring up because I haven't really thought about that. You're right. The difference between the A.B. and the NBA are much more stark as compared to the W.H.A. and the NHL. I mean, okay, guys can have long hair in the W.H.A. There were some more bruisers. They drafted younger players. So that's not a big deal. And for the brief history of the World Football League, some minor rule changes, they moved the goalposts back and they – Change the field goal positioning and all that stuff. The NFL adopts very quickly, and nobody seems to notice. But yeah, that's, that's really a, a great point. So toward the end, uh, we get we get to the mid seventies, nineteen seventy six. We're down to what seven teams at this point seven eight Seven, eight teams? I think San Diego folds. Right we
2: seven. Yeah, seven. The teams. End, there were seven. If you don't count, there were eight at the beginning of the season, but the Baltimore Colts folded okay. after three preseason games. Okay,
1: so we have seven teams left. There's. Still trying to get the merger sorted, and uh, I guess one of the big sticking points besides the, what the players were fighting it earlier was people like Red Arbach of the Boston Celtics are vehemently opposed to letting these knuckleheads yes. into their league. And uh, I guess the, the the problem with the merger, I guess, centers around how many teams are going to be let in, and kind of you take the story from there when with, with the, the final yeah, yeah. seven
2: and the final four that actually do get in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you go to the start of the 75-76 season, you know, you really have this this real opportunity um, for the teams to, but the, but the NBA knows that the ABA is falling apart, right? And, um, and falling apart at the seams, um, bailing out water every second. Um, and, you know, the, the Baltimore Claws were the Memphis Sounds reincarnated into Baltimore and they were so ill-funded that they folded before the season starts. So now you got the NBA guys kind of smelling blood because they've already got one of the teams, you know, out. Now they're down to seven, which is the least that they ever had in the history of the league. And the Virginia Squires and the Utah stars were hemorrhaging. And, um, and so they, they could just smell the blood, you know, and so could the ABA. So the ABA was trying to hurry up discussions and, uh, and there was still, uh, still an antitrust case out there from the NBA Players Association. The ABA players had filed a lawsuit against the NBA and all the NBA teams saying that they were trying to kill the ABA and put it out of business. So there was all this craziness going on. But from a basketball perspective, the, the, uh, the uh, Squires folded. They couldn't make it. And so by the time you got to the end of the season, actually there were nine teams. I'm sorry. I said there were eight. There were nine because the Squires folded, the Stars folded. And now that left you with six. So by the time the merger was really getting into full swing, there were only six viable teams left in the ABA, the Nets, Nuggets, Spurs, Pacers, and the St. Louis Spirits and the Kentucky Colonels. And, um, um, you know, the Squires survived long enough that most of the negotiations centered around seven teams. But then, at the very end, it was only those six, and the NBA would only take four, and they decided to treat it as an expansion rather than a merger. So they said, okay, every team is going to have to put up $3.2 million and give up draft choices, and then we really only want the Pacers, Nets, Nuggets, and Spurs because of their attendance figures and the players they had. So then John Y. Brown, the owner of the Colonel, said, well, that's then you're going to have to pay me. Right. So then the NBA and the other and the ABA agreed they were going to be paid basically three million dollars to go away. Uh, Daniel and Ozzy Silna, the brothers who own the spirits, were saying we want a deal, too. But they had a smarter lawyer than John Y. Brown had. So their lawyer, Donald Chupac, said, hey, we don't need the three million. We'll take I can't remember exactly what the cash portion was, but let's call it two or one and a half. And then we want one seventh of the television revenue forever that comes from uh the teams that go into the nba from the aba and it was one-seventh because of those seven teams when they started the negotiations and they never let go of that so it always stayed one-seventh right and i'm sure they tried to make it one-sixth and then they tried to make it one-fourth but the nba guys stuck with the one-seventh but that's but that one-seventh right ultimately became the greatest deal in sports history as the internet came into being and streaming and cable TV and all that stuff comes in. And so the Selner brothers ultimately made, you know, a billion dollars off of that deal. And that takes us where the net.
0: I'm sorry.
2: They just settled a few years ago. They settled for like 95%. I think they were paid something. It was something like $500 billion. I'm sorry, $500 million. Um, And they were paid that amount. And then they retained a much smaller, future revenue portion so in the end if you count all the money they got from 1976 the four or 500 million that they were paid in this settlement and the future revenues i'm pretty sure it was over a billion dollars for that settlement that's just crazy that's
0: nice. and then the so the NBA net- so did not officially take over the aba they just
2: no brought four,
0: four teams, teams in. and called it next yeah, expansion. that's
2: exactly right. It was an expansion. Um, it, even the language they used treated it as, a, as an expansion. We've always, everybody always says merger, sort of colloquially, but but it was mm-hmm. it was clearly an expansion that only involved those four teams from the ABA, and the four teams paid dearly with giving up draft choices for a couple of years. Um, you know, the entry fee. Um, you know, they had to take on. Uh, obligations of of uh, deferred player comp obligations from the aba even from other teams it was kind of a bloodbath by the time it happened
1: and john brown ends up
2: with an nba team though yeah he took his three million and invested it in the buffalo braves and the nba
1: and uh, weirdly he did not move it to cont- oh because he traded franchises with the celtics right
2: i believe it was the celtics yeah yeah yeah
1: so yeah. uh, I. Too bad for the people of Louisville that he didn't stay in Buffalo, and then when it came time to move the Braves in 1978, he could have moved him back to Louisville. And, uh, yeah, that's a, right. Would have solved that. So well, that whole
2: thing started falling apart the year before when he when he traded Dan Essel, You know, because just before the the summer of the final ABA season, uh, so that would have been right after the Colonels won the seventy four seventy five ABA champ- season championship. Uh, You know, they had Artis Gilmore, Dan Issel, Louis Dampier. So they have these three Hall of Famers themselves. And uh, John Y. Brown dealt Issel that summer to the the, the infamous Baltimore Clause, Um, uh, you know, because he didn't want to have to pay. He was trying to figure out a way to not pay for all those big salaries. And uh, Issel refused to report for the clause. And so Denver ended up doing a deal with Baltimore to send Dave Robish from the denver nuggets over to uh baltimore and then Issel got to go to the denver nuggets and and had an amazing nba career with the nuggets
1: so this brings us back to where kind of the mission of dropping dimes is uh some guys made it to the nba and a lot of guys didn't and you kind of want to explain how you know dropping dimes tries to fill in the gaps there and and why there's an organization like dropping dimes needs to exist because it was still the seventies. The big money wasn't quite there yet, even though salaries were going up.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. So PF as an example to listeners, you know, if they want some context, yeah, the salaries in the ABA and the NBA did go up as the ABA existed into the, into its later years and into the seventies, you know, that all worked. But at the beginning of the ABA, guys like Roger Brown, a future hall of famer, his contract was for uh to play for the Pacers was $15,000, which was less than he was making with overtime at the factory in the GM factory in Dayton that he was working at when he signed with the Pacers. So, uh, you know, Bob Nedelick, he made this famous comment to the Pacers when they offered him 14,005. His dad was a doctor in Iowa. And he said, he said, are you effing kidding me? My allowance is more than that. Hmm. You know, so, so, <laughs> So those guys did not make very much money. And more importantly, when that merger slash, you know, expansion, when that actually happened, a ton of ABA players got cut loose. All the teams that, that were dying, you know, those guys were out on their on their rear end mid-contract. And there was no pension that really survived. Um, there was no pension that covered the players who played before 1971 at all. And um, so no health care benefits came about as a result of the, of the the so-called merger, and the NBA never took responsibility for providing pensions or healthcare benefits for any ABA players, even though the three-point shot, you know, all these things we've talked about it just enriched the NBA game so much, right? So um, the Dropping Dimes Foundation has two missions when it started, and that, those were to fight for an NBA pension for ABA players, and that fight continues. And it's been in, uh, there's been a lot of press lately, and we're hopeful that might happen soon. But then also, until that happens, and for the players who won't be getting a pension, because there'll be lots of them, because you will have had to have played three seasons to be eligible, um, those players, since they have no health care benefits and, and no pension benefits, they run into all kinds of problems. We've seen guys who are homeless. We've seen guys who are using kerosene to heat their apartments or their very small houses because they can't afford to pay the electric bills. Um, We've helped guys with clothing, we've helped guys with food, um, we've helped guys with even things like, unfortunately, either their families with uh, burying the player because they don't have the money to pay for the funeral, or in some cases, players have had deaths in their immediate family and have contacted us because they can't afford to pay for even the cremation. I mean, they're not looking to do a $20,000 funeral, they're just trying to bury, in the case I'm thinking of, the, the individual's daughter. And uh, and 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 you know they, they they don't have the cash for that. So there's some real hardship going on out there that dropping dime steps in and helps with, uh, with the assistance of all of our advisory board members that we've talked about and uh, and basketball fans.
1: And how can basketball fans get involved and uh, and help out?
2: They can contribute at droppingdimes.org. That's our website, droppingdimes.org. And they can follow us on uh, on, on Twitter, um, at, and that's at droppingdimes67. Um, but, uh, but we can always use the contributions. We can always use the follows. We can always use the social media assistance to, to get the cause out there. Cool. They can also buy a basketball from Lana Sports because Lana Sports contributes a portion of their oh, proceeds, fine. the proceeds to dropping dimes right uh
1: any other aba questions darren uh man it sounds like we pretty
0: much covered it yeah yeah um so you're saying that there's there's maybe some documentaries or some stuff in the air that we might be able to uh oh yeah <laughs> like yeah. I, I can't there's not like a movie or there you know there, there there's it's too cool and so uh I feel like this generation maybe is aware of it, but really no one really knows anything about
2: it. Um, I think, think what the thing you guys do, right. I mean, the things that you and your, and really your generation of, your, of, of, you know, customers do celebrating vintage sports and defunct sports teams and keeping those names alive and the history alive. I think your listeners and the people who are interested in your products would be fascinated by the whole ABA story because it's, it really is, there, there, we've been contacted by um, producers, Netflix producers who are very well known by feature film producers, um, YouTubers. Um, we've, we probably have three or four things on our plate right now where people are coming to Dropping Dimes and they're saying, hey, will you connect us to uh, the storytellers, the people who know the stories and also the players so that we can keep this history alive We can, and we can let people know how important The American Basketball Association from '67 to '76 was in today's basketball because I tell you we we've always thought if current NBA players um, and current NBA fans knew more about how important the ABA was that we wouldn't even you know we wouldn't have to do fundraisers because we'd have enough people supporting dropping dimes that we you know we'd get all the support we need.
0: Yeah, LeBron gave you a point zero percent of his.
2: Salary. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> well, he has a lot of these ABA guys to thank for that salary. I'll tell you exactly, that. exactly.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'll have some further resources uh, on the other side uh, in the outro for folks to check out if they want to learn more about uh, the ABA and such. And uh, the, our, our final order of business is, um, Darren. You want to do the honors because I, I get to do this every week, and you have been on in a while. Oh yeah, so yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No doubt. I know. I, I'm I'm all rusty in the, the podcast world. thing. It's like. So busy with all this other stuff, and yep. uh, I don't know. I, I wish I could be on here and do it more. But, yes, at the end of every podcast recording, we ask the guests to give us a promo code that can be used for 20% off at Synthi Shirts or oldschoolshirts.com on fabulous T-shirts. So, uh, Scott, will give you the honor. Uh, what What would you like this week's promo code to be?
2: Hey, can we make it can we make it Netto's in honor of Bob Nettolicky and Netto's in the Meadows? Can we make it N E T O S Netto's? N E T O S
0: Got it. Oh, Netto's. Yep. Netto's.
2: Yep. We got it. And then someday you guys are going to have to do a Netto's t-shirt. Netto's in the Meadows.
1: Yeah, we have we have some stuff in the works, which I may be able to talk about. Like, I said, on the other side? We have a few things. I know we got you got a message today from one of our designers. Uh, We need to wrap up a few things, but uh, some very exciting things coming, folks.
2: Excellent. I'll call. I'll call Noto and tell him that he's that he's famous again.
1: There you go. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He's not gonna hunt us down. He's. he's I will.
2: I can't guarantee that, but uh, I won't give him your address. (laughs) There you go. All
1: right. Well, great. Well, we uh, appreciate you doing this, Scott, and taking the time and educating us on the American Basketball Association, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.
2: Okay. Sounds great. Thank you guys very much. Right. Bye-bye. See you, Darren. See you, Pia. I feel
0: sorry, baby. I
1: Of course, you can find Dropping Dimes at DroppingDimes.org. And as I promised you, further reading and watching and listening uh, on the American Basketball Association, I would refer you to Terry Pluto's fine book, Loose Balls. Uh, Interestingly, Terry Pluto writes for the Akron Beacon Journal and the Cleveland Plain Dealer, or formerly did. Uh, Cleveland did not have an ABA team, but we got mixed up in all this somehow via the WHA because, like I said, pointed out in the interview there. The WHA, the ABA, and the World Football League are all closely related. The same people started all three. But uh, Terry's got a great book called Loose Balls. That's probably the preeminent read, I would think, on the American Basketball Association. Check that out. You can also find a great documentary on YouTube called Long Shots, The Life and Times of the ABA. You can check out uh, one of our affiliates, Uh, folks that advertise with us. They're called Fun While It Lasted. It's a website that is all about defunct sports, like old school shirts, uh, basically. And he's got all kinds of great stories about not just the ABA, but all kinds of defunct sports teams and leagues. Similarly, our friend Tim Hanlon over the Good Seed Still Available podcast uh, also talks about such matters, including the ABA. In fact, he has an interview with Pat Boone, uh, the singer that owned the Oakland Oaks. That's a fantastic interview. And if you can find it, I recommend Breaking the Game Wide Open by Gary Davidson, one of the three guys that founded those three leagues it really interesting uh, that it was written at the time that the World Football League was started. interesting insight on what he was thinking starting those leagues. Oh those guys also started a fourth one by the way, world team tennis. We have a bunch of uh, designs of that in old school shirts. Dot com. So again, uh, yeah, do check out the, uh, the the whole ABA collection, and doing so will help dropping dimes, that's right, because we are launching a collection of player t-shirts, yes, featuring players of the American Basketball Association, including some of the players we talked about, some of the ones we didn't, Cincy Powell, Ron Boone, Dan Eisel, Darnell Williams, uh, Ch- uh, Char- Darna Hillman, Chuck Williams, uh, Jabali Warren, uh, Louis Dampier, uh, uh, John Brisker, the fellow we talked about who had uh, who disappeared uh, mysteriously, uh, Wendell Ladner, let me see, and of course uh, Rick Berry, we have a shirt of him, and those will all be going up tomorrow, August 11th. OldSchoolShirts.com proceeds from the uh, sale of the player shirts will benefit dropping dimes and subsequently the ABA players, of course, that uh, do, are not eligible for a pension because they either did not make it to the NBA or they did not play long enough or they played before there was any kind of a pension at all. All right, so if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, simply email us, podcast. At CincyShirts.com, maybe put in the the subject line a podcast guest and then maybe a few sentences about why you think that person would be a great guest. You can nominate yourself even if you would like. If you think you have an interesting Cincy-related story you would like to share, if you haven't already, check out the Cincy Shirts podcast archives baseball, great. Johnny Bench to actors, Amy back. There's just tons and tons of great episodes back there. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Find their music at Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music find vintage years from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia at where? We talked about it before, kids. Were you paying attention? Oldschoolshirts.com. Of course, lots of defunct sports teams, including the entire American Basketball Association collection, except for the four teams that went to the NBA because we don't have a license for them. Anyway, uh, but we have the rest of the ABA. We're going to have those player shirts starting August 11th. The player shirts, uh, the money from those uh, portion of will benefit the Dropping Dimes Foundation, so uh, buy early and often. Uh, We also have old restaurants, shopping malls, things like that. It's like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is Nettos, N-E-T-O-S. That comes from... Bob Netolicki, who was also a famous player in the American Basketball Association, played for Indiana. And we'll get a shirt sorted for him very soon, I'm sure. But in the meantime, he is our promo code, just Netos, N-E-T-O-S. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com. Purchase uh, online or in-store at Cincy Shirts and over the Rhine and Hyde Park. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye! Hey!